You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net. And thanks for joining us. So many thanks to those of you who sent in pictures of your loved ones who have sacrificed themselves on behalf of our country. And we just once again want to remember and honor those who have served or who are serving our country. So would you join me in prayer? Lord, we thank you for the freedom that we do have. And it is a freedom that was bought at a cost. We have been reminded that there are a number who gave their lives and have given their lives so that we can have the freedom that we enjoy. And so we remember them today. Lord, we remember those who are currently serving or who have served our country, and we are so grateful for their sacrifice, for their service as well. And Lord, it reminds us of the sacrifice that you have done for each one of us, that you have demonstrated your love towards us by laying down your life for us. And thank you that this very letter that we are going to be ending today has so powerfully reminded us of that truth and will remind us of that truth and reality once again. So God, we ask for the work of your spirit, for our joy and for your glory in Jesus' name, amen. So we're ready to dive into to God's word together. And as we do so, as we come to the end of this amazing letter to the Galatians, I ran across another letter that was written by a World War I soldier and in honor of Memorial Day weekend and what we've been focusing on and talking about, I'd like to read this letter to you. And as I do, I'd like you to watch for what this soldier talks about because when he wrote this letter, he was pretty sure it was going to be his last to those he loved. And this is, this is what he says and this is the background. On September 11th, 1918, during World War I, Sergeant David Kerr, a Columbia University student, had dropped out of college to fight in the war, and he sent a letter to his mother the day before the attack on St. Mihiel in France. While some troops consider it bad luck to write a in-case-I-die letter, Kerr wanted his mother, his sister Elizabeth, and his fiancée Mary to keep their spirits up no matter the outcome. So this is what he wrote. Tomorrow, the first totally American drive commences. And it gives me inexpressible joy and pride to know that I shall be present to do my share. Should I go under, therefore, I want you to know that I went without any terror of death and that my chief worry is the grief of my death, what will bring to those who are dear to me. I feel wonderfully strong to do my share well. And for my sake, you must try to drown your sorrow in the pride and satisfaction in the knowledge that I died well in so clean a cause as is ours. Remember how proud I have always been of your superb pluck. Keep Elizabeth's future in mind and don't permit my death to bow your head. My personal belongings will all be sent to you. Your good taste will tell you which to send to Mary. May God bless and keep you, dear heart, and be kind to little Elizabeth and to those others I love so well. And it is signed, David. So what he wrote in this letter was what he wanted his family to remember. And as we come to the end of this letter to the Galatians, what Paul is writing here is what he wants his spiritual family to remember. And if you think about it, if you and I were writing what we knew was going to be our last letter to our loved ones, 
In that letter, and especially at the end of that letter, we would make sure that we emphasized what it was that we wanted them to remember. And that's exactly what Paul is doing in this final section of the letter to the Galatians. And we're going to, to read that now in just a minute, actually. But as you can see from the setting that I'm in, I'm in the Grace Greenhouse. And this is a part of our community garden ministry. And I love this ministry because this ministry is more than just about growing plants or growing vegetables. It's about growing relationships. And we're shooting in this setting because in this passage that I'm about to read for you as we close out this letter, Paul is gonna use a lot of agrarian imagery. He's gonna use a lot of growing and sowing imagery. And so we thought it was very fitting that we shoot this in a similar setting this morning. And so I wanna unapologetically promote our community garden and encourage you, if you love to garden, if you wanna build deeper relationships in our church family, if you're watching this from our community and you're one of our neighbors, we invite you in because we would love for you to be a part of this because it is about growing vegetables, but also about growing relationships. And so now as we turn our attention to this final section of Galatians, it's gonna continue to build on what Paul has been describing to us as spirit-filled relationships. What do spirit-filled relationships look like? And you'll notice from the graphic on the screen that this is gonna build on where we were last week. Last week, we looked at spirit-filled relationships or those kinds of relationships where we build one another up, not, not beat each other up. And spirit-filled relationships are all about being burden lifters, not burden givers. And of course, in a spirit-filled relationship, you're learning how to grow in generosity and also learning how to receive gratefully. And so now Paul is gonna to begin to build on those realities by helping us understand some other realities as well, what spirit-filled relationships truly look like. So we're gonna to open to this final passage. This is Galatians chapter six. It's verses seven through 18. And this is what it says. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become wary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law, yet they want you to be circumcised, that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. And the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. So let's go back 
to that first verse and begin to work our way through it. He says that a man reaps what he sows. So here's a question for us to wrestle with. Can you grow something that you don't sow? I have a number of my family who live in Eastern Oregon, and some of them have been watching our services online. And if any of them are watching this morning, hi family, so glad that you're watching. But many of my family who live in Eastern Oregon are farmers or ranchers, and they grow crops. And can you imagine if they sowed wheat and then expected soybeans to come up out of the ground and to grow from that? Of course they wouldn't expect that. You don't need an agricultural degree from OSU in order to, to get that. And yes, that's, that's a shout out to you, Beaver fan. That's for you. But you don't have to have a degree, and it doesn't take a lot of thinking that through to realize you're never going to grow what you don't sow. Of course that doesn't happen. So that's the answer. Can you grow what you don't sow? No. But unfortunately, common sense isn't necessarily common practice because sometimes we forget that with relationships. And Paul is pointing out that reality here. And he reminds us that spirit-filled relationships are all about sowing with purpose and perseverance. So if you lead a sinful, selfish life, you are going to reap the consequences of that. You are going to grow what you are sowing. And of course, this right out of the gate forces a very necessary question in front of each of us to wrestle with. What are we sowing with our lives? What are we growing? What are we reaping? And this is revealed over time in our relationships. You know, as a pastor, I've, I've spent a lot of time with a lot of people and I've spent a lot of time with couples. And in particular, I've spent a, a lot of time with couples who were working through marital struggles and was reminded of this recently with a couple that you see this come out in relationships. You, you grow what you sow. And in a marriage, in a relationship where there's been criticism and bitterness and anger and unresolved conflict and unforgiveness, that eventually that relationship begins to decay. And if those things aren't steered into, eventually it disintegrates. And that's exactly what Paul is describing here when he says, from the flesh we will reap destruction. That word destruction really means disintegration. And that's one of the consequences of sowing out of our sinful nature. And that's one of the reasons why he tells us in verse 9 not to become wary in doing good. Because sometimes it feels like nothing is happening. And so much of the Spirit's work, so much of life transformation is this combination of time and perseverance and patience. So I have a plant that I keep in my office. And this is that very plant. And I'd like you to look at this plant for just a second 
and estimate how old this plant is. Okay, now let me tell you the story behind this plant. This plant was a tiny little plant that was given to me in college by my college girlfriend, Jamie, who is now my wife, Jamie. This plant is 32 years old, and you never know that by looking at it. And maybe it would have grown even bigger if I would have had it in another pot and, and done some other things to it, but you'd never know by looking at this plant, it's 32 years old. And yes, of course, different plants grow at different rates and at different paces, but the point being, this took a lot of time for this plant to grow to this size. And the same is true many times with the work of the Holy Spirit. It takes a lot of time, it takes a lot of patience, and it takes a lot of perseverance. For those of you who know my story, you heard something last week that was significant. It was a story that I told about Mother's Day. And I'm sure a number of you picked up on a very important detail that I mentioned about that. I had mentioned that Mother's Day came with a, a weight this year that we haven't experienced before. There was a burden that came with it because it was our first Mother's Day without Jamie's mom, but it was also the first Mother's Day for my mom in 55 years without my dad. And I said the reason why for that was because just like Jamie's mom, my dad had gone home to be with the Lord. Now, those of you who have known me for a long time have heard me share at various time, through times in my years here at Grace that I have prayed and prayed and prayed for my family and those in my life who don't know the Lord. And for years and years and years, literally every day, and I still pray, every day for my family who don't know the Lord. My wife and family and I prayed that for my dad. And in the last week of his life, my dad affirmed a relationship with Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. My friends, that was over 35 years of daily praying for my dad to do just that and not seeing anything happen for 35 years. There really weren't any tangible signs that I could tell that that was true until the last week of his life. And so my encouragement to you is Paul's encouragement to us to not grow weary in doing good, to sow with purpose and perseverance because even when we don't see it, God's spirit is at work. And so this begs another question of you and me. Where are you currently sowing where you're not seeing any reaping or maybe even any growth? Could it be with one of your kids? A grandkid? A parent? A coworker? A friend? It's so important that we let this reality sink in and Paul's encouragement to go deep into our hearts because it is very easy to become discouraged and it's very easy to give up when it seems like 
the spirit isn't doing anything where you don't see growth or you don't see tangible signs of things changing. And yet we're reminded that God does constantly work. And in fact, Paul gives us some very practical advice on how we are to sow. What does it mean to sow? What does that look like to sow in the spirit? And he says in verse 10, let us do good to all people. That's one of the ways we sow the spirit and sow in the spirit. And one of the ways that we have done that as a church family, we mentioned to you last weekend, we encouraged you to be a part of the food drive that we did last Saturday for our backpack blessings and food ministry program. And a number of you participated in that. In fact, we want to show you and tell you that story now. So wasn't that great? How exciting. And many thanks to all of you who participated in that food drive. For those of you who volunteered, talk about a very tangible example of doing good to all people. But there are a couple really important dynamics in this verse. We are to do good, but do you notice who we are to do good to? To all people. Everyone. That's what makes spirit-filled relationships distinctive is, is we do good to everybody, which if you begin to think tangibly about that, that's not just the people who are easy to do good things for or to, that's for difficult people, hard to get along with people, people who drive you crazy or to elevate it to where Jesus himself elevated it to, to do good to our enemies. That's all-encompassing. But notice there's special emphasis given in that verse. He says all people, but then he goes on to say, but especially to the family of believers. Now let's think about that for a minute. Would you have chosen your family if you could have? Now be careful how you answer that. You may be sitting next to some of them. But would you have chosen your family if you would have had the chance? Would you have chosen me to be part of your family? Now, be kind. But Paul has emphasized, and the reality has been ever before us in this letter and really throughout Scripture, that if you know and love Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are part of a family. It is called the church. And I can guarantee you that there are people who you probably would not have chosen if you had been given the choice to be part of your spiritual family. And yet, he tells us to do good to all people, but especially other Jesus followers, other believers. And that's so important and so fundamental for us to keep in mind because that's what spirit-filled relationships are, are all about. And that's not always easy. In fact, why should we do that? Well, we do that because of what God has done for us. We are under new ownership. When we receive Jesus Christ 
into our life as our Lord and Savior, he changes us. And his love for us compels us to love other people. Because he does good to us, we in turn do good to other people. Living out the gospel, living out spirit-filled relationships is always a response to what God has done for us. Because he has called us out of darkness and brought us into his light. And because we have seen his light, because we've experienced his light through the power of the Holy Spirit, we worship him and we love him. And that's what we're gonna do now. Let's sing about that truth together. So how deep is the Father's love for us? How amazing the truth that we just sang together. Man, he loves us and that love transforms us. And Paul is now really going to emphasize that. And in fact, he makes that point here in verse 11 where he says, see what large letters I use as I write to you in my own hand. And we might hear that, look at that, read that and go, oh yeah, good for you, Paul. You're now writing the letter yourself. But there's a whole lot more to that. Because you see, in that day and age, you had a scribe who would write for you. And Paul quite literally is taking the pen from the scribe, they didn't have pens then, but whatever they were writing with, and now he's writing the rest of the letter in his own hand. And scholars have, have wondered about why he's doing that, but almost all of them agree that one of those reasons has to be that he is impassioned, that this is urgent, that he wants to make sure they get, they understand what he is about to say. And what he is about to say is very significant and really makes clear once again what he's been saying throughout this letter. He's now going to expose empty religion and false teachers. And he's going to do that by making these comparisons and these, and these contrasts. He's, he's going to look at the difference between false teachers and himself. The difference between empty religion and the cross. The difference between circumcision and the new creation. In fact, let's, let's start there. What does he say? Starting in verse 12, that there are people, false teachers, who are trying to compel them to be circumcised, which I know sounds kind of weird. And I want you to imagine with me when we are back together in in-person worship, and that is going to happen, my friends, at some point, whether it's in several weeks or several months, at some point we're gonna be back together again. And can you imagine, you're walking into the facility here at Grace on a Sunday morning to worship, and one of the greeters at the door, who isn't gonna hug you or shake your hand, by the way, but who's standing back and says hi to you as you're walking in the door, stops you and says, ah, wait a minute, we kinda of need to know, no, we really do need to know, you've been circumcised? I mean, can you imagine that? That would be so weird and so strange. You've heard of the right hand of fellowship. You'd probably give them the back hand of fellowship, right? But all that being said, what a weird question. And this whole thing strikes us as really weird until we begin to think about it's not quite so weird when you begin to realize what we elevate to the same kind of importance. And the examples I'm about to give you I have had conversations with people with over the years who have elevated that to a place where these false teachers were elevating circumcision to. I've had people ask me, what version of the Bible does this church use? I've had people ask me, so does this church endorse public school, charter school, 
homeschool, private school, and of course, a number of you are getting, maybe for the first time, your chance to give homeschooling a try with where things are at right now. I've had people ask similar questions and place similar importance on things like, how do you baptize here? How do you practice communion here? And by the way, how often do you practice communion here? And what gifts of the Holy Spirit do you recognize? And which ones do you not recognize? And I could go on and I've probably offended some of you and that certainly is not what I'm trying to do here. Those things I have opinions about as well, but none of them are as important as the gospel. And sometimes those things not only get elevated to an importance and a priority that they shouldn't have, they get placed right up there with the importance and the significance of salvation. Just like what was happening with circumcision with these false teachers. But salvation is by faith alone, through Christ alone, by his grace alone, based on the fulfilled promises of God. Paul has been making the point throughout this letter that salvation is about Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, plus nothing except our response to that reality. At the end of the day, the bottom line is the bottom line. Salvation by grace alone, by faith alone, through Christ alone, based on the fulfilled promises of God. And he has been exposing these false teachers, and now he's doing it once again. They use fear. They coerce, coerce people into trying to follow them and trying to buy into what they're saying. Their arguments are flawed and inconsistent. And they're doing all this so they can flaunt themselves, so they can brag, so they can boast about the following that they have. And, and partially in exposing their flawed thinking, once again, Paul is basically saying in this passage, if what they're saying is true, how come I'm the one who's being persecuted? And as he said earlier in this letter in chapter five, they've completely removed, they've completely abolished the offense of the cross. Because my friends, the cross is offensive to empty religion, and to this broken world. Because what does empty religion do? What does empty religion say? It always coerces. It, it coerces. It sometimes manipulates, but it imposes. It attacks. It uses shame and ridicule and guilt, and it demands. And some empty religions will actually demand your life from their followers if you don't follow what they say. Our broken world comes at it from another angle. Our broken world says that we are the solution, that we're improving, that we're evolving, we're self-actualizing, that, that we are the solution. And the cross says both of those are dead wrong. Both of those are empty. The gospel is about invitation, not imposition. And the gospel is about providing the solution, not saying that we are the solution. The cross helps us remember and understand 
We're not looking to change behavior like empty religion so often tries to do. We're looking to be completely changed because we need a savior. We are not the solution. The cross declares we're actually the problem. And that's why we boast in the cross. Because it's not about us and what we've done. It's about who Christ is and what he has done. And this is so countercultural, once again, to this world that we live in. Through the miracle of technology, social media, here we are able to have an online community experience together. And this is, this is wonderful, especially in this season that we find ourselves in. And there's so many wonderful things that social media has done to help create types of community. However, as with anything, there is a dark side to social media. And it is a dark side that, at least part of that dark side, we've become kind of numb to. But social media has become a platform for many to make life all about themselves. There's so much boasting, so much bragging that goes on with social media. How much of our social media communication is about what I'm doing, what I've done? Look how cute I am. Look at the vacations I take. Look at my grandkids who are so much better than your grandkids. And I'm, I'm overemphasizing, but not by very much. For social media, the Trinity isn't the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Trinity is me, myself, and I. It is the perfect example, the golden example of the brokenness that really pervades all of us. The pride that says, look at me. Look what I've done. Look what I have. Look what I've accomplished. And the cross says, no, it's not about you. It's about what God has done for you to rescue you from the emptiness of that very life. In fact, the bottom line is, God doesn't want to make you a better person. He wants to make you a new person. Look what verse 15 reminds us of. What counts is the new creation. We have to believe in the new creation because it's true and because it's reality. So do you? Are you a new creation through knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Because of the scope and the reach of this incredible medium that we have, I'm pretty confident in saying there are probably a number of you who are not new creations. And the reason I can say that isn't just because of the numbers of you who are watching this or who will be watching this in the future. It's because I was once there myself. In fact, it's where we all start. We are all broken, sinful, self-focused, self-absorbed people apart from right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And there was a season of my life where I was not a new creation. In fact, there was a season in my life where I would have told you, yeah, you know, I believe the Bible. No, yeah, I believe, I believe in God. And yeah, I've heard that Jesus stuff. Yeah, I, I guess. Kinda, sorta. That's not what being a new creation is all about. New creation is about literally changing from the inside out. Jesus himself said 
that it's like being born again. It's like completely starting over. Again, becoming a, a new person. And that is a defining moment choice that you have to make. You see, love, true love, is always about a choice. You can't coerce someone to love you. You cannot demand that someone loves you. They have to choose to love you. And God invites you to love him. Why? Because he has first loved you. On this weekend where we remember those who have sacrificed themselves on our behalf, that points us directly to the greatest sacrifice on our behalf that has ever happened. Jesus Christ dying on the cross to take all of our brokenness, all of our selfishness, all of our sin, all of our pride, all of our boasting onto himself, and in return, giving us the power for right relationship with him and right relationship with others. This very spirit-filled life, spirit-filled relationships that we've been looking at these last couple weeks. And so the question still stands. Are you a new creation? Have you made that choice to receive Jesus into your life? And there are a number of you who are watching who have. You have done exactly that. But you're not living like it. And one of the reasons why may be because you are picking and choosing how you will trust and obey God. That you're treating God's word or the promptings of the Holy Spirit like a buffet where you walk in and see some things you want and some things you don't. So you pick and choose accordingly. And when you and I live like that, we are robbing ourselves of the spirit-filled life that God wants us to have, the blessings that he wants us to have. And quite frankly, some of you are not experiencing those blessings because you're not trusting and obeying God fully. You are picking and choosing and therefore diluting the power of God, the promises of God, and what God wants to do in your life. And so Paul's appeal here is applicable to those who are in this place as well. Believe in the new creation. Remember who you are. The world has been crucified to you and you have been crucified to the world, meaning that your strongest desire is not your deepest desire, that strongest desire in the moment to engage or to pursue or to indulge in whatever that brokenness, that sinfulness is, is not more powerful than the deepest desire you have if you are a new creation to trust and obey and love God. The world has been crucified to you. You have been crucified to the world. And a story I was reminded of, actually a phone call that I received not long ago, really in my mind, pulled together a lot of what we've been talking about in these final verses of this letter and in this passage that we've been looking at today. Not long ago, I got a phone call from a former student of mine. And this student, we'll call him Matt, was one of the first generations of students I had when I was a middle school pastor. And I talked about this and mentioned this in my Facebook sermon preview. And I'll finish that story now for those of you who watched that because I deliberately left that incomplete. But Matt was in my first generation of students when I was a middle school pastor. And so 
when I had gone away to college and graduated, the, the church I had grown up in hired me as the middle school pastor. I married Jamie and started into that ministry and absolutely loved it, loved working with students. And this first generation of students that I had, Matt was one of them, there was a pretty large group of them who I would call church rats. They, they grew up in the church, which is a good thing. But in particular, these church rats came to church not because they wanted to, but because they had to. Their parents made them. And this, again, is not a commentary or an evaluation of, of, of that. As parents, you know, you have to figure out how to parent and guide your, your kids for sure. But these parents had decided that their kids were going to go to church and these kids did not want to be there. So if they had the choice, they didn't come to any of our programming, but they did come on Sunday mornings because their parents made them. And they wanted it to be known that they did not want to be there. And so these church rats would all sit together in the back of our, of our time together, of our class, and they would distract and they would mess around and not pay attention. And they would mock the kids who were trying to, to learn and were trying to interact and engage. And it just wasn't a good scene. And there were multiple phone calls, multiple conversations that I had with these church rats and that I had with Matt in particular. And for some reason, I've never quite figured out why, Matt decided to come to our summer camp the last year he was in our ministry. This was literally the last program he would be involved in before he moved on to high school ministry that fall. And so he comes to our summer water skiing camp. And once again, he makes it really clear he does not want to be there. And he was a thorn in my side that entire week until finally it culminated in a heart to heart that he and I had where he was given a choice. And I said, okay, Matt, here's the deal. You've got a choice and you've got two options. If you want to stay at this camp, you need to do what we ask you to do. And if you're not willing to do that, then your other choice is I will put you on a Greyhound bus and it will take you to the nearest town and your parents can pick you up there and you can explain to them why you chose not to stay at camp. But the choice is yours. What are you going to do? So he reluctantly decided to stay at camp, did just the bare minimum to stay at camp, and then the camp ended and then he graduated into high school ministry. And quite honestly, it was a huge sigh of relief for me. He and his friends were now the high school pastor's opportunity. And so the years went by and I'd wonder occasionally, I wonder what happened to Matt. And not long ago, I got a phone call for him. And understand this is 25 years later and I can't believe that it's Matt on the other end of the line. And very quickly, after he introduced himself, he thanked me and said, Jay, I just wanted to call you and tell you where I'm at in life and what's happened in the years that have transpired since we last saw each other. And he apologized for being so difficult in those middle school years. But then he said something to me that was a defining moment for me and so incredibly encouraging. He said, Jay, I want you to know that I've become a new creation. And in reading this passage, this passage in Galatians, it says that you are to share with your teacher all good things. 
And he said, you were one of my first teachers in the word of God. And you spent this time with us and you put up with us and we made life so difficult for you. And I just wanted you to know, I'm a Jesus follower now. I'm a new creation. I am now serving, volunteering at my church to work with kids just like I was. And he said, my life has been changed. Thank you. Thank you for trying to persevere with me. I'm an elder in my church now. I'm serving and investing into the lives of other students. I am a new creation because Jesus has changed my life. And I hung up the phone and I said, thank you, God, for reminding me that sometimes it takes 25 years for your spirit to grow what has been sown by others. My friends, this is the God who makes us into a new creation, who changes us. So let's celebrate that. Let's remember that. If you have made that, if you have not made rather that defining moment choice to receive him into your life, I encourage you to do that now, just to say that between you and him as we now prepare to sing to this amazing God who loves us so much. He is great. Great is the Lord because of what he's done for each one of us. He is the God who first loved us and he invites us into right relationship with him by making us into a new creation. And that's the reality I wanna leave us with. This is a verse I absolutely love. This is out of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, and this is familiar to many of you. And say it with me if you know it, but here it is. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone and the new is here. I hope you believe that. And if you believe that, I hope that you will now go and live that. There is nothing better than knowing and loving the one true God. And so our prayer for you is that you will live out your identity as a new creation, that you will go live out the gospel now as you head into the rest of your week. We look forward to seeing you next weekend. God bless you. Go and live for him. Thank you for joining us for Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church here in Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net.